0: Happy Thursday and welcome back to another episode of the Rocketeer Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made, the 1991 Joe Johnston-directed feature, The
1: Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of tvdads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So Jim, another uh, another new guest with us today. Yes, um, we came up, coming up on new ones. Exactly. That's uh, and some people keep coming back, so that's a good sign too. You know, we're, we're, they're not all just one offs. Yeah, that's true. But, <laughs> <clears throat> with us today is uh, is somebody another one of these people that sort of pulled out of uh, pulled out of my past. A, a for all intents and purposes, a lifelong friend. Somebody that's been uh, uh, an honorary brother of mine for forty years or so. This is Lieutenant Colonel Eric Flint. He's the uh, director of the Lewis Army Museum at the Joint Base Lewis, Lewis-McChord, uh, down sort of near uh, Tacoma, Washington. So, uh, Eric, welcome aboard, sir.
2: It's a genuine pleasure to be here. Uh, I wish well, I believed to you. To, um, to how, talk to Jim. <laughs> yes, yeah. to talk to Jim. Jim, it's great to talk to you. I some long, internecine...
0: Uh, Yes, arguments yeah. going on
1: yes this is uh i i'm sorry jim you're along for the ride but uh but but we are going to work this out once and for all <laughs> after long, four decades long simmering feud yes. i can feel it Precisely. <laughs> so wow.
0: well we've got, we've got a we've got a, a busy and interesting historical uh literally historical uh, minute here we're gonna uh well first we start off with uh, uh cliff getting jenny back in the model t as as they go uh, they've got to go off to see neville sinclair Doing something with uh, airplanes instead of uh, lounging in his pajamas.
1: Right. Yeah. Cliff wanted to see the Cagney picture. Yeah. But uh, but instead they're going to go see Wings of Honor with Neville Sinclair. Yes. And so, <clears throat> you know, right after that, we cut to uh, suddenly we cut it. to Adolf Hitler, who has a credit in this film and IMDb as himself, <laughs> which is really pretty trippy. Um. But uh, you know, very quickly setting setting the scene here is they're going to the going to the movie. You know, they're watching watching a newsreel and uh this really predates uh, i think all three of us All three of us are around the same age here and and uh and certainly the newsreels died out i would say by the early 60s but for a time in the late 20s and certainly uh, mid-october 1938 when this film is taking place uh you you read the news in the paper you got your news on the radio but the only time you really saw the news uh was in a newsreel before a movie and you might go to a movie and you there might be a it was often a double feature You'd have a full-length uh, full newsreel, movie tone, or universal news. You'd have a cartoon, and sometimes you'd even have a little short subject. So when you went to a movie, you were, you were in it for the long haul. But, uh, of course, in this one, we're starting out, uh, again, we see, we see Adolf Hitler, the uh, unlikely credited actor in this movie. And, uh, and that's a, a large part of what made us think to bring, uh, bring Eric on to give us a little bit of context. What's, what's going on in the world? What are the Germans up to here in mid-October of thirty eight?
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that you, when you saw Hitler, you thought of me. Um, (laughs) No, no, that's almost as humiliating. I actually was, uh, just as a quick side note, I was speaking at my daughter's school, my daughter's 13, uh, middle schooler, and I was, was, they were actually studying D-Day. And, uh, so I'm talking about D-Day and why Hitler, uh, wasn't, nobody wanted to wake him up on, on, on June 6th because he was a bit of a late sleeper and, uh, uh, and so as I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this conversation that someone would have with Hitler, I selected one of Willow's friends, my daughter's friends, and uh, started, you know, referring to her as Hitler. as so though we were having a conversation, and I realized that, that I apologized that I was in referring to this, 13, this lovely thirteen-old girl who has been a guest at my house uh, many times as Hitler. And uh, so a, a day or two later, I get this wonderful thank you card from, the, from both classes, so, you know, thanking me for being there and talking about neat stuff and. Uh, the one that was signed, thank you for teaching us about D-Day, Hitler. Uh, so I, I assumed that was my, my, my daughter's friend, and she sort of really rolled with it in good fun. So um, You can always I'm,
1: trust Eric in front of an audience of any kind. <laughs> Please, uh, stake my uh, reputation I'm, on it, Jim. I'm gonna win
0: you can call friends? my daughter Hitler. Yeah, I guess.
2: yeah well, I, I, I like to liven it up. Some people are Goebbels. So I'll, I'll go Mussolini. Um, and... Uh, you know, if I want to get uh, obtuse, I'll go Franco from Spain. Like, wow.
1: Well, do, you, so, do you ever go Admiral Durnitz? I guess is the big question. Well, Heil Dernitz. Heil Durnitz, of course. And, and
2: that, that would get uh, Hal and I, again, on, on, on an off topic. Uh, anyway, so what are the Germans doing in uh, October 1938? Well, they're not being very nice to their neighbors, <laughs> uh, I think is really the, the short story. Uh Essentially, you really have to understand, people look back and, and they see how Hitler uh, was pushing this concept of Lebensraum uh, and how, having spent all four years of high school, uh, high school German at Enumklau High School, just <laughs> like me, right. um, cannot tell you what Lebensraum means without getting on Google Translate. Uh, essentially, the, the, con- <laughs> the concept is a living space. And, and, and the Nazis co-opted that as expanding the, 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 the borders of Germany as they existed in the 1930s to give the German people as the master race living space. And so how they were doing that at first was by uh, going around and, and finding wherever there were, there were pockets or populations of German-speaking peoples and saying, hey, these people are really Germans, so they need to be part of Germany. And uh, the, probably the most famous one is the Anschluss, which was essentially the annexation or the absorption of, of Austria. Um, much of that was willing on the part of the Austrians, but there were a few Austrians who kind of thought this wasn't quite cricket. Uh, they didn't want to be part of Nazi Germany, but nonetheless, because they were German-speaking peoples, they became part of of uh, Germany.
1: And, and excuse yeah. me. That was about. That uh, was March of thirty-eight, if I'm remembering right. Yes. Six seven months before this. This time frame. Yes. So, so we, and was we, that we, the we, first big grab of theirs?
2: Um. Uh, well, I'd say the first big grab prior to that would have been uh, Alsace-Lorraine, which was the border area between France and Germany. That uh, was it. Was a large industrial area. That was. It. it it's an area that's gone back and forth over, uh, you know, hundreds of years between, uh, the, the Germans and the French, um, back when you had the little German duchies and stuff before German unification in 1870, 1871. So what they did is the first thing they did is they said, okay, here's land that was taken from us, uh, during the, the Treaty of Versailles, that, that was the treaty that, that, that ended World War One and sort of, you know, um, set the stage for World War Two because it, it created all of these really crushing financial burden on, 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 uh, on the Germans. And the government was not very strong. Uh, it was called the Weimar Republic. and so Anyway, um, so that was kind of the first thing is they did this the, kind of a test. So let's see if anybody – we're going to take back this land that was ours. And so they just went in and occupied Alsace-Lorraine. And the reason nobody really did much – I mean, there were complaints – and, and you'll hear it referenced a lot today. They call it appeasement, and uh, people will say, "Oh, if you know, we're appeasing Saddam Hussein, we're appeasing, you know, Vladimir Putin, we're appeasing somebody." And that connotation is is, is back when people were so averse to war because people don't realize just how horrible the First World War was, and it was so ghastly. Governments and peoples were were very hesitant to to you know, they were terrified of another war and so that's part of the reason and Hitler was able to exploit that and, and push a lot and so he started with Alsace Lorraine and and took that land back and he said hey I did that and nobody gave me any real trouble uh, and then he went after the other German and because most of the people in that area were German speaking uh, then he had the big Anschluss with Austria and then in October 1938 as shown in the newsreel. It talks about the annexation of the Sudetenland. So how can you tell the kids what the Sudetenland
1: is? <laughs> Sudetenland? Uh, the Southland. Am I right? Um,
2: yeah, good, good, good call, <laughs> Hal. Hal. Um, and,
1: and Lebensraum, I believe, is the love room. Uh, yes, precisely. I my high school German correctly. <laughs> I think that's Lebenszimmer, but hey, you know. Uh, we're, Haak, we're, so that's, that's
0: next to the dining room, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Precisely,
2: near, near Finland and on the other side of yeah. Cambodia. Um, so anyway, uh, so um, no, the Sudetenland—they're the—I'm they're the, gonna screw it up—but it's something along the Sudetes Mountains. I, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Which is uh, a mountainous area on the border between Germany and what was then Czechoslovakia, which is today the Czech Republic. And those were lands that didn't belong to Germany uh, in World about going back to World War One, but they belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so they were actually part of, uh, of Austria. Um, so it, there, were, uh, there were a couple of million German-speaking people in this sort of southern, western, northern border area of Czechoslovakia that was called the Sudetenland. And most of those people, again, were culturally, ethnically, linguistically German. And uh, uh, so the, the people there were, were, were kind of, you know, didn't have a problem becoming part of Germany for the most part. Uh, they really didn't identify themselves as Czech. Now, the Czech government, however, had, had a few issues with it, as one might imagine. And so that's what's going on initially there in the newsreel on October 38.
0: How far back, uh, going, going back to alsace Laurent, how how far before that was the reindustrialization of the Ruhr Valley, which I think was the first transgression against the Treaty of Versailles?
2: Yeah. Uh, gosh, I'm going to have to. You kind of I'm sorry.
0: I didn't mean to put you. With you my there.
2: historical pants around my ankles, <laughs> um, 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 so
1: <laughs> that's a lovely that is, metaphor.
2: That is the first time I've used that metaphor, and I'm going to keep it. <laughs> well, um, you heard it here first, folks. It tells well <laughs> only on
1: the Rocketeer Minute. Do you yes. hear things about Eric's pants? Yes.
2: Well. Anyway, pray continue. Um, so yeah, that was that was the the, the first transgression, um, because what Hitler was doing, the intent of when the, when they took the the Ruhr Valley. Uh, that industrial valley away from Germany following World War One, The intent was to, you know, France was kind of making a bit of a land grab. They could have a case because there were French-speaking people there as well. But mostly it was to go in and, and take that industrial capacity, and their justification was, well, Germany owes us, they attacked us, so we're going to you know, take the, the, the financial windfall from that industrial region. And Hitler, of course, as he is... Uh, he comes to he comes to power in nineteen thirty three, one of the first things he says is, you know, that's Germany, we're gonna take it back. And as he rebuilds Germany, he's going to need that industrial capacity. So that that is really the first violation of the of the Treaty of Versailles. And and at that point when he realizes nobody really pushes back in any substantive way, he says, Okay, you know, step two.
0: Yeah, I keep and and with with that taking the Ruhr, I mean the important thing about the Ruhr is that most of the resources that would, you know, basically supply uh, Germany with its ability to make things like tanks and stuff, all the the synthetic rubber and the coal and the steel, all came out of the Ruhr Valley. So that was, I mean, that was a key step in kicking. I mean, although you know the obvious case is that the Treaty of Versailles started World War II just by being the Treaty of Versailles, but yes. that that was the necessary step, the the reindustrialization there. And then everything else just kind of swung into place. So by the time we get to this, we're we're right now are at the night of October fourteenth, nineteen thirty-eight. Things are pretty well going down that ski slope. Uh, There doesn't seem to be anything. Out there to stop uh, Hitler from from continuing. Right. And Precisely. The, and, oh, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just to
1: say that maybe to set you up, Eric. The narrator right here is uh, the, sorry, the newsreel announcer.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, which is William Woodson. Thank you for that uh, that bit of, that tidbit, Jim. Um, he's saying, you know, Herr Hitler assures the Western powers he is not massing troops at the Czech border, and of course, you know, this is over footage of these you know giant parades of troops. Um, I don't know if there's any way to tell if uh, you would know far better than I do, Eric, if if that shot looking down at the troops marching in the street, if there's any way to tell if that's appropriate for 38, if there's any little details that pop out saying that would be before or after. Uh, I think it's generic enough that I'm sure it's just appropriate. But anyway, the, the yeah, claim here I, is that, you know, Hitler, no, we're we're not doing anything along the Czech border. Um, yeah. I think he's lying.
2: Um, yeah, I, th- I think there was a bit of fibbing going along there and <laughs> and, and and looking at it. Yeah, looking at the looking at the guys and and, and the helmets and the, and the national shields and everything on them and and the guys with the great coats, it, it it looks. Um, one, it's October, so they're all wearing their 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 their, their long johns and long coats and. Um, oh, whether a great so Whether, or, whether or not that is actually that is appropriate, that's definitely not. Um, you know, it's not 1933, and it's definitely not later in the war. So that's probably pretty appropriate. And that's one thing that's been so impressive about the rocketeer was just. How much effort they put into getting all the all the details correct? Yeah, and that's
1: something that comes up uh, you know comes up an awful an awful lot.
2: So I mean, part of me wouldn't be surprised if you know someone did their homework and they said, okay, we need footage of you know, something from you know newsreel footage from October 1938, and this may well be it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, and in this, uh, in a tiny detail in the same scene, Cliff is holding he's got his popcorn and a tiny glass of of soda, apparently a tiny cup. And uh, you could barely see a blink, and you'll miss it—a box of Cracker Jacks. Yes, and that's that label is absolutely spot on for what that would have looked like in '38. Um, and we, the three of us, uh, are old. We may not be old enough to remember newsreels, but we are old enough to remember when you actually got something good in a box of Cracker Jacks.
2: Yes. Well, how when you're eight, good is a is, is, a, is a pretty it's well. a
1: pretty there's a, a pretty liberal definition of right. good. But nowadays, you, maybe you get a QR code, and then you scan <laughs> that with your phone, and it's... Takes you to an "I love you, Cracker Jack" website or something, So or at some least back then you got something sailor tangible. GIF. Yes,
2: yes, yes, precisely. Uh, s- something tangible, but something you could easily choke on, right. much like Cracker Jacks.
1: Yes. Well,
2: no, actually, the, well, go ahead. I'm just thinking. I'm, I'm sorry. Cracker ahead, Jacks yeah. and, and the popcorn seem slightly redundant, but not 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 entirely. So you, can,
0: you can't have too much popcorn. Just depending on what you want to coat it coated with. Right. That's true. Excellent. Uh, the the idea of having this. Uh, this uh, dirigible uh, the the luxembourg in this case Uh, there wasn't a luxembourg there wasn't a follow-on to the hindenburg but
1: actually there excuse me there was one follow-on to the hindenburg but it wasn't very well it was the Graf zeppelin 2 the the lz-130 right yeah so which which
0: which was there i mean they they had built it the month before this but it really wasn't used as a uh you weren't going to be seeing it
1: over the skies of the U.S. Let me no, that. at the Hindenburg uh, tragedy happened uh, about uh, eighteen months or so before this film, May of thirty-seven, and that was really the end of uh, of certainly of passenger Zeppelin flight, certainly in, in North America. But the Graf Zeppelin II did a bunch of smaller flights in sort of German territory. And what I, I thought was really interesting, which I hadn't known before uh, before just recently, was that when the Graf Zeppelin II came around, uh, they actually sent it around uh, around England to sniff out the uh, Chain Home radar stations. So he really? was out there uh, spying on uh, on British radar, which, of course, proved to be a, uh, you know, such a boon for the British during World War Two.
2: Wow, I did not know. That. So well, that's I, I think it's uh, interesting that they they in keeping with the theme that they chose to bring this in. And now I'm trying to think if did Stevens have any Zeppelins um, in the uh, in, in in the graphic novels?
1: You know, as I remember, it's funny. I've just gone back and reread them again um, and I you know, it's easy to get sort of jumbled between sort of the movie adaptation, the movie itself, and then the originals, but I was sure that there that there was. I'll have to go back and dig through those original single issues again.
0: I just remember the uh that that um, uh green hornet looking aircraft right. in there that experimental looking thing. Yeah, that's um, sort
1: of a replay of the Miss Mabel scene where he goes and, you know, saves another pilot.
0: Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. uh the Graf Zeppelin, one of the things about the, that final uh, construction, the, the follow-on to the Hindenburg, was that it was uh, going to be used as heli- in, with helium. They were, they were setting up a thing with helium, and um, there, the fellow that designed the, uh, the, Gra- the Graf Zeppelin II, who had also, also designed the Hindenburg, decided he would never make another ship out of hydrogen. And so but the problem was is that helium was only available in I think it was in Russia and of course in Amarillo, Texas. So uh-huh. he he tried to make a deal with the U.S. Uh, he made a deal with uh, the Secretary of Interior uh, Harold. Or actually, he had made it. The, the guy that designed it made a deal with Roosevelt, who said that we could he could uh, import helium from Texas. But then after I think it was after the uh, annexation of uh, Sudetenland, that uh, the Secretary of Interior kicked out all export licenses for Germany, so the uh, the Graf Zeppelin had enough helium to you know to, to make a couple of flights. But the the first time it leaked, that would be the end of uh, of its of its use.
2: Wow. Well, you know, you bring an interesting point in that uh, at at that at that time. So here we are, you know, in October 1938, and what were the attitudes of Americans um, towards Nazi Germany? And you know you, we would be doing something like cutting off uh, all, all the export licenses, uh, and that kind of thing. And that's kind of very interesting. It's 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 something a lot of Americans, in hindsight, you know, following World War II, don't like to look back because it's a little uncomfortable.
1: Right. Well, and on that very note, um, and uh, Jim, I know you and I have discussed this sort of offline. I don't think it's come up on the show before so far. If it has, apologies to our listeners for being a bit redundant, but. Uh, um, you know, Charles Lindbergh casts a bit of a shadow over the film with a statue and the lucky Lindy, Lindy flying school and things like this. Um, so actually at this moment in in the film, October 14, going to 15, 1938, um, he's about, uh, Lindbergh is about midway through a trip to Germany. And while he's there, uh, he gets a medal from Gehring. And it's, uh, even at the time, Lindbergh was pretty awkward about it. Lindbergh was a prominent America firster saying, you know, that's Europe's war. We don't need to get involved. Um, you know, not... Uh, in hindsight, a sort of a hard viewpoint to imagine, but at the time, not an uncommon one, and not uh, necessarily an unpopular one. Uh, you know, there's a reason that it uh, that starting from the time frame of the film here, there's a reason it took another more than three years for us to get fully involved in World War II, at least openly.
2: Well, and that's actually one of the unusual things. And you know, uh, some historians will look at one of the biggest blunders Hitler made was on December eighth. Uh, declaring war on the United States. Honestly, uh, you know, Germany didn't invade uh, us. You know, when they they attacked Pearl Harbor, and so uh, oddly <laughs> enough, we were at war with Japan. And then the next day, Hitler just sort of jumps in and says, "Oh, by the way, I'm declaring <laughs> yeah. war too." Um, us too. We're yeah, yeah, us, we left us out. Too. <laughs> me, me, me. I don't want to be left out. So yeah, so it's this really, you know, that Germany didn't need to, and so we wouldn't necessarily. Uh, have gone to war right away with Germany and, and you know, Even after Pearl Harbor says, okay, Germany declares war on us. We had uh, a Germany first uh, strategy uh, and, and that set up through the whole war, you know a lot of uh, internal battling within the US military and our allies and the government about you know where the resources went whether to the Pacific theater or the uh, European and North African theater
1: That's interesting so in, in your sen- in your opinion, you know, we're, we're 1938, we're, uh, you know, within a month or so of it being 20 years after the end of World War I, um, here's Cliff Secord is a, uh, you know, professional pilot, race pilots doing all these things. Uh, he Clearly in the scene, he really doesn't like Hitler. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's, uh, but, uh, you know, he makes the comment, you know, talking about their their goodwill, the Germans making their goodwill tour. And he says, you know, the last goodwill tour buried half of Europe and, when Hitler says "world peace," he mean you know. Cliff scoffs. He means a piece of the world. These kinds of things. Um, Cliff was too young to have fought in World War One, but he's around pilots who did. Yeah. Um, is that an? Would, would that be an uncommon attitude? Are they giving us lip service because we have the benefit of hindsight? We know Hitler's a bad guy, so of course our hero doesn't like him. Or by thirty-eight, yeah. was that a fairly common thing to say? Eh, we don't like this guy. We don't trust him. We don't know what a monster he is yet. No, but... and
2: and and that's what's what's interesting is. The comments that he's making about World War One, and this is something that's really come to light, uh, with the centennial of the First World War, um, and it was interesting. in In two thousand fourteen, I was very fortunate to be uh, over in the United Kingdom, uh, and there was this just this tidal wave of of. Uh, of history coming out, both popular history, you know, there were documentaries on the BBC, there were magazines and newsstands, and then there was a lot of new academic research from the, from the, from the Tweed Jacket crowd and co- coming out. And so it's been a 100 years, anybody who was involved in the war is dead now, so now we can take a real honest look. And one of the things that really struck me uh, was in a lecture by a gentleman named Sir Hugh Strawn. and trust me, there's no way uh, you would ever spell his name correctly. Uh, he was an Oxford Don. She was not spelled like any human spells do. she and Strawn. It's, it's like lots of silent cues. Uh, but he had the tweed jacket and he was an Oxford Don and quite a brilliant fellow.
1: And you can bet he never once ended a sentence with a preposition.
2: No. Uh, and can you tell me where the library's at? And I will <laughs> yes, et cetera, um, et cetera. not finish that joke. So, but what's interesting is it's so hard for us today to to we can't look at World War I Imperial Germany without looking through the prism of World War II Nazi Germany. And one of Sir Hughes, uh, his research, and he was really comparing all the governments involved in the First World War, the major governments, And ironically so, Imperial Germany in 1914 was the most liberal progressive government in the world at that time. And it, people had greater suffrage uh, uh, the, the 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 policies, the social policies, were more progressive than the United Kingdom, than France, and certainly than the United States. Um, so, but so it's it's hard for us to not think of well, World War One, Imperial Germany was just like World War One, Nazi Germany, they were all after world domination. When in fact, it, if let's say Great Britain never entered the First World War, and Germany. You know, the Schlieffen plan works. They knocked France out militarily. They knocked Russia out militarily. What would have happened? Well, Germany would not have occupied the world. You would have Europe today with a strong, central, young Germany as the wow. economic powerhouse of Europe. That's really what would have happened. You wouldn't have had this. There was no Nazi ideology. There was no you know, seeking Lebensraum. There was no you know, master race stuff going on. So, so get back to your point, Hal. They are clearly making Cliff the good guy because he's talking about well, you know, the, the last time they did, you know, had a world tour. Um, he's he's clearly making the Germans the bad guy. So, sure, a lot of people weren't comfortable with Hitler, uh, but there wasn't this. I know he's he's a monster. No, that just right.
1: It's not just there, synonymous yeah. with evil. <laughs> yeah, and
0: of sure. of the two of the two people sitting there, I would think Jenny would have more experience with. People fleeing Germany, a crystal knock that happened two years before. Mm-hmm. So she would have uh, wandered into a bunch of uh, emigrate Jewish uh, actors who had been pretty much kicked out of UFA and all the other absolutely um, uh, uh, film th- uh, film places there. And she would have been bump. They would have been um, competing for jobs in Hollywood, trying to get in at places where she was at, like RKO and, and Warner and MGM. So I would think if anybody had have, have personal stories, I mean, uh, Cliff knew about the Flyboys from World War One, but she was seeing the the oncoming uh, problems of World War Two in, in her own uh, career.
2: Absolutely, and even if Cliff's sitting around talking uh, with a bunch of veteran pilots from the First World War, there was still, you know, if you watch some great film, was like Great Waldo Pepper.
1: Sort of oh talks yes, about, you know, a frequent topic of conversation on this show.
2: Uh, I find that hugely surprising, um, <laughs> says, uh, Eric, says Eric, why Eric, not,
1: <laughs>
2: but no, uh, is, but is that, is that, you know, propaganda during the first world war uh, was extremely important. And, uh, uh, and so people did kind of, you know, see the Germans as the evil aggressors and things like that. But I think amongst the aviators, you probably didn't have that. They weren't sitting mm-hmm. down in the trenches. Um, And I think even guys in the trenches didn't really have this, okay, you know, because they knew the Germans weren't eating babies or, you know, nailing nuns to doors or anything like that. Uh, Yeah, fairly certain they weren't doing that. Fairly certain. Um,
1: You know, it's funny you mentioned propaganda. Not to go too far off into the weeds here, but (laughs) uh, um, and then not even so much propaganda, but but we we see this uh, this zeppelin here, and you know the Germans used zeppelins to sort of good psychological effect during World War One, not so much great strategic effect. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly early on, but uh, but you imagine these great you know several hundred foot long ships coming over, sometimes at night, and just bombs falling from the sky all over so civilian populations and things. Small bomb loads, but it was still one of the first applications of strategic bombing against sort of civilian targets and uh, i was doing some research for some, another project not too long ago and i came across uh, an ad in, in the in london uh, or the sorry the british the daily mail i guess that's a london paper and um, they were showing the uh, uh, the monetary compensation that you were entitled to from the government if your family had been injured or killed in uh, in zeppelin bombing And I don't recall what the numbers were. It was just horrific. It was like if it's a child, uh, you get 25 pounds. If you lose an arm, uh, if you're the primary livelihood, uh, you know, the breadwinner, you lose an arm, you get 50 pounds. And then the scale just goes up. You lose a leg, you get 75 pounds or whatever these numbers were. And it was just it was absolutely unbelievable, but so sort of almost sort of weirdly British to make it sort of quite, you know, methodical and and, uh, sort of a by your leave sort of thing.
2: Well, that kind of thing, that compensation, um, we did that in Iraq and Afghanistan wow. uh, to this day. Um, and so, and there is, I, I won't go into gratuitous detail, but there, there is, you know, if you look at a life, you know, life is priceless, but if you have to assign a monetary value to it, uh, and based on you know your your available budget and the british were doing that that very thing i'm sure you had a bunch of number crunchers you know adding up the arms and legs and subtracting the children and dividing by mothers (laughs) or something horrific like that and coming up with well you know well you you know you get eight pounds fifty for for a finger and you know that that that's
0: that's how modern actuarials do do things i I worked i worked for insurance companies for many years and um, if you look at accident and liability, you know a- accident disability information, it's it's all split up like uh, it's like the game of Operation, and you have little <laughs> parts, <laughs> and you, you basically just add up what the what the sum total of the missing parts are to get to figure out how much to cut the check for. Sure. Um, it's a horrible thing, but you know that. How else are you going to do it? You can't just say, "Okay, everybody gets infinity dollars." It doesn't work that way because the uh, the, the liability pot isn't big enough to do that. Right. So that, that's it's it's a horrible yet fair way of, of handling these things.
2: Yeah, precisely. Well, any any time you, you try and make a, a uh, oh, gosh, I'm, my my brain a dispassionate assessment of something that is by its very nature horrific, uh, and anything involving war. Oh, it's a, <laughs> it, it, it just comes off sounding inhuman but it's something that in many cases must be done right. uh,
0: speaking, speaking of war just getting back into uh, speaking of era. war Speaking of war, as, as we're watching this movie, how about, about that Hitler, Hitler huh? Yeah, <laughs> he was I, he's a, a jerk. fellow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure yes, yes. Um, we're, watch, we're watching, we're, we're just talking about different types of, of aerial bombardments and, and things like that. Uh, someone who we talked about in the past was uh, Billy Mitchell, who had the audacity to bomb aircraft ca- or you know, uh, battleships and things and show that air power was a fantastic way of destroying the other guy's uh, weapons of war. Um, Mitchell got in trouble mostly for for taking things out against the Navy, so the Navy was kind of dead set against, you know, s- saying that their battleships were now obsolete and things. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, at this point in 1938, where is the Army in terms of gearing up for the on, you know, the oncoming um, the air war that that's going to be happening? What is, what has, what had Mitchell wrought by this? I mean, he was long dead, but what had uh, what had Mitchell wrought by the time? the army air force was looking at things in 1938
2: well you know i i, I wouldn't be able to answer that question in its entirety unless uh how i'll kind of defer back to you just because of what what the army air corps wasn't the army air force yet was building at that time though i will go to um are you familiar with a guy named julio douay uh
0: he's a- I don't believe anybody. so. Well, okay, so let's I, go into the I, silence. I believe he's on
1: the show tomorrow. Uh, yeah, do I have my notes I, correct here, Jim? <laughs>
0: Let me see. I just, oh, yeah, here's his phone number. <laughs> yeah.
2: Precisely. Well, um, I'm sorry he's dead. But oh, uh, nonetheless. Uh, well, that just was, happened to he...
1: us today with a potential guest. That's terrible.
2: <laughs> well, <Wow. laughs> meanwhile, back at the ranch. That, yes. that, that is all. Uh, anyway, no, Due was um, uh, a, a, a very forward-thinking, if rather pragmatic person. Uh, military uh military philosopher theorist and his special his, his thing was aviation a, a lot of people may have heard of guys like uh jfc fuller or or cat or cat, oh god now i'm just gonna blank on his name um uh darn it they're both brits uh and and they, they were big fans you know after world war one they saw the the uh the potential for armored warfare and so uh guys like jfc fuller and uh, uh, George Patton, um, even, uh, oh, who's the tall guy? De Gaulle, yeah, tall guy, big nose. Tall guy, guy. French, speaks with a funny accent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that guy. (laughs) These French have a different word for everything. (laughs) Um, Going back to the old Steve Martin routine. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but so a lot of military historians are familiar with with those guys going, oh yeah, the blitzkrieg and tanks and all that kind of stuff. But Douay was a guy going, really looking at the potential for aircraft. And his thing was, that really freaked people out is he said, yeah, uh, yeah, you need to bomb population centers. You need to bomb civilians because you need to, and, and he was thinking, you know, again, this very ruthless strategic, uh, which is war. Uh, it's funny, this is how people thought at the beginning of World War One. They all thought that the war was gonna be, oh, it was gonna be short and bloody and that was the most humane way to have a war. And technology was just gonna make it short and bloody, but it would be resolved.
1: Right. And as I uh, said, the war to end all wars. That was precisely. the plan. And,
2: and 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 the thing is, everybody knew war was coming in World War One. I. I mean, they knew it was going to happen. It was inevitable. Just who struck first. And we got to make the Germans the bad guys because they're sitting there going, well, we're between these two massive uh, enemies. You know, the only way we're going to survive sh- is to hit first. And so, so that's what they did. So Duvet, you know, after the war, and he sees the potential for aircraft, and he said, look, you know you have to break uh, a nation's will and and how it's interesting that you talk about the germans using the zeppelins uh that was also terror bombing and and absolutely you know and and again a, a, a dirigible is not the most accurate <laughs> aircraft in the world and we also <laughs> learned from world war ii with the massive bombing that we did they did a thing are you familiar with the strategic bombing survey
1: the survey itself i don't think so
2: okay uh well like they did at the end of World War II, uh, they brought in a lot of statisticians and data folks, and they crunched a lot of numbers. And so it took about 10 years, but they produced this thing called the Strategic Bombing Survey, uh, which was, let's see just how effective we were at knocking out the evil Hun during World War II. And unfortunately, what the result of that, and the Air Force was not too uh, pleased with it, was it said, yeah, uh, really hitting you know all the strategic bombing, you know, high-level daylight bombing, low-level night bombing, like, you know, we split between the Brits and us, uh, really not that effective. In fact, uh, right. uh, the Germans in, in, in the winter of 1945, their uh, their production capacity was higher than it had been at any other point during the war. Um, so, yeah, uh, so the this concept of, you know, the Air Force being able to win everything by air power alone was invalidated and, and, and they weren't too pleased about
1: it, so. That's amazing. You know, as we say, we talked about Mitchell before and, and, you know, it just sounds like the pendulum swung both ways mm-hmm. that if we had gone into World War Two with the with no concept of our equipment or support of strategic bombing, I, I would think we almost certainly would have, uh, you know, would have gone the other way. But, uh, but as you've said, then the data points out that it also didn't win the war single handedly, which I think we knew, but
2: no um, and, and I, I, I think uh, strategic bombing which or pardon me tactical uh, bombing if we sure. think have like the ninth the ninth Air Force and, and its role say uh, in the you know d-day uh, the Normandy campaign and then subsequent uh, uh, where you saw bombers you know from b-17s down to b26s and a20s and you know even on a smaller scale with p-47s and that sort of thing that was really quite effective Uh you know, you had close air support with fighters, but also essentially tactical close air support with bombers uh, on, on, on an right. operational level uh, was very effective.
1: You now, speaking uh, to sort of the, the small little extra part of that uh, part of that question. So where, the Army, where is the Army Air Corps at this point? Yeah. You know, we've, we've talked in this uh, in this movie so far about, uh, um, you know, airplanes like Cliff's GB, which is four or five years old uh, for 1938 but not unreasonable but certainly in its heyday the GB was was the fastest thing around and you know the uh, the then army didn't have anything that could keep up with it so it was, it was an amazing period and in, certainly into the early 30s by by 1938 um, you know there two airplanes sort of stand out in my mind and there, there certainly were more than that as being the thing that say okay we've transitioned from The sort of awkward lagging behind between wars period and we're starting to ramp up. Number one, uh, by this point, 1938, uh, the B-17, the first version of the B-17 bomber is in service. Um, Not for very long, but it's uh, it's there. And that's obviously an airplane that's going to carry through the entire war. You know, it'll see follow-ons of the B-24 and the B-29 on the U.S. side. But uh, B-17 certainly uh, later variants with backbone of the 8th Air Force in in, uh, Europe, all those sorts of things. And then the other airplane, this I thought was just a small little interesting bit of trivia. And on the fighter side of things, Um, this, uh, while Cliff and Jenny are at the movie, or in fact, earlier this day while Cliff is flying his GB, uh, the uh, P-40 Warhawk uh, prototype was making its very, very first flight, October 14, 1938. So... um, that was uh, that was a fighter that certainly wasn't uh, uh, at the forefront uh, through the war, but in in my mind, at least sort of anecdotally, it was uh, you know it was the first of the World War II fighters, um, you know, with the Allison engine and all the other advances mm-hmm. that certainly uh, you know paved the way for the the Mustangs and P forty sevens et cetera of the world. Um, so I, I was just it,
0: wondering a, a third one in that mix that we might be missing because it's a civilian aircraft I think the the, the missing part is the dc3 which would later become the uh, c-47 absolutely yes. and yeah. that I mean that that made airborne possible and uh, no that's a uh,
1: great point so dc3 first flew in 35 uh, if I remember right and uh, you know the backbone of, of US airlines and then as you said c-47, um, and then the C what was the other one, Eric? Was it the C50? C
2: fifty Do you think of C50, C54 or the C fifty C fifty four or No, the, the C54 C 54 well, was C46. the D C four. There's C forty
1: six Curtis Commando. There was another variant of the of the C forty seven that just had a different designation. And I always forget it's less popular, but Nothing um, like maybe
2: R four D, but that's just a different right. designation. Um, um,
1: but anyway, as a as a transport airplane, and then certainly as you know, dropping paratroopers. You mm-hmm. know, we talk about uh, D Day uh, right here in uh, right here in Oshkosh. Uh, we've got a facility that updates and overhauls DC threes. So you know, eighty plus years later, the type is still going very strong, and they're doing a restoration project on a C forty seven known as That's All Brother, that was at least one of the. Uh, absolute lead aircraft uh, on June 6th, dro- you know, with par- loaded paratroopers leading these massive formations of Eric, air- I don't remember how many hundreds of airplanes.
2: Oh God, uh, no, I couldn't, I couldn't
1: yeah. tell you. I, mean, I read somewhere that I think like the if you started with the very first airplane and measured to the last, you had a string strings of airplanes that were something like 200 miles long, oh, uh, flying over to Normandy and and leading that invasion. So that's absolutely an excellent point, Jim. You've got. Uh, you know, with the C-47, you've got cargo and transport represented. With the P-40, you've got the fighter. And the B-17, you have the bomber. And I think all three of those things, you know, like I said, it's it's a little bit arbitrary. But in my mind, those are the sort of the cutoff airplanes. Those are the World War II airplanes. And they're not the interwar airplanes anymore, even though the yeah. DC-3 started, you know, yeah, I mean, a ways the, earlier.
0: The, um, I, just, I was just going to say, you're, you you know, it's like being able to deliver bullets, bombs, uh, uh, soldiers, and payload to uh, To the targets, is what made up the air war in in World War Two. Right.
1: Um, very quickly, apropos of absolutely nothing. I don't want to derail it, but I, if I don't throw this out when I'm thinking of it, well, I'll never forget or I don't remember. But. Uh, Jennifer Connelly has this line. She leans toward the Cliff while they're watching the Zeppelin fire on. She says, "Your GB could fly circles around that thing." Yeah, and that is one of those uh, the perfect sort of "Oh, bless your little heart" moments because it's like saying, you know, boy, your motorcycle could ride circles around that Walmart. You know, it doesn't. It's like that's <laughs> Thanks, not. Honey. That's um, I'll take it. But, you, know, but, you know, oh yeah. You know, then you look. and say, Okay, well, it's you, Jennifer Connolly. So yeah I'll, yeah, I'll I'll take the compliment. Uh, yeah, let, course, let's see that let's see that dirigible do a barrel roll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the uh, I I know from my my brief personal experience at the helm of a zeppelin, uh, <laughs> which is not a phrase that one gets to toss out every day, but uh, yes. that uh, the one aerobatic maneuver that they are capable of is certainly more true with the blimps than the, the rigid airframes. But is this, is something called a bag over, sort of the uh, the airship equivalent of a wing over, and it sort of you sort of go up and then. Turn and sort of come back down, and nothing happens in any sort of big hurry. But (laughs) anyway, uh, Jenny, that's adorable that your GB, you know, your (laughs) GB could play circles around that thing. Not really a compliment uh, of any of any great measure.
2: But 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 we do appreciate the fact that she is endeavoring to stroke his ego, right? um, uh, However misguided it is,
1: and you know, through this whole uh, whole film, Jim, it's uh, you know, we talk about them sort of bickering a bit and you know pv's always say you know what you two scrap about this time but uh um she's really always more supportive of his career than he is of hers yeah he takes his career as a you know as an air race pilot which is you know it's impressive but it's not exactly steady work (laughs) and and, and
0: and as we'll find out later that you know she met him when he was crop dusting right (laughs) his job was a crop duster not much of a not much of a racing
1: competitor there so, but, uh, yeah. but good for her for always trying. Yeah. Stand yes. by your man. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, now we're there.
2: Related. By the way, just a little bit of conjecture. So what do you, what do you think? Uh, uh, have, have we ever touched on what, what uh, the Rocketeer does during the Second World War? Or does he just perpetually live in the Art oh. Deco
0: world of the 1930s? <laughs> well, there there is a, a, a Rocketeer's Adventures coming coming out with uh, the Rocketeer in World War II, and they're oh, also, I just also pre-ordered been... that. So oh <laughs> so, okay,
1: <laughs> well, and that's that's a comp- if I remember right, that one's a compilation graphic novel of some single issue comics that have been out there that uh, that show yeah you. he's he's. Uh, um, sort of maybe a civilian employee of the, the army, something like that. So he's out there, you know, helping fight the bad guys and things. And then there's another, there's a, a softbound book, and I've only uh, just started getting into it, but it's a series of short stories. It's not a comic book, but it's actual prose stories uh, about the Rocketeer. And I believe some of those talk a bit about uh, what, what sort of he was up to in World War II. But, uh, and then this, uh, this upcoming movie that we don't know that much about, The Rocketeers, um, Speculation is that it's going to take place. They say six years later, so that's you know late in World War II. It's still still very much in the thick of it, with uh, with somebody else uh, maybe donning the helmet in the pack. So who knows what uh, what that will turn out to be. There's there's very little of anything meaningful out there, and we've uh, we've grilled poor Billy Campbell to death, and uh, his
0: answer was, "I don't know." Yeah, exactly. Nobody's told me anything, but yeah, I'll do it.
1: I'll show up if uh, you know. He'd show up if he's asked. And if he's not asked, then... Uh, then uh, you know, I'm not going to go see it. I, I'm it's talking right? boycott, Jim. I don't know yeah. about you. Let's get people angry now.
0: <laughs> Start the groundswell. Yes.
2: Hey, I'm going to do a quick plug. Hal, I know I sent you some pictures of it, uh, but are either are of are you familiar with PulpFigures.com?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, you've, you've sent yeah. me some good stuff there.
2: Yeah, that they make the, the little 28-millimeter um, wargaming figures, but they have the U.S. Rocket Flying Corps. Oh. troops that look um i'll, I'll Hello, send you jim. some i'll send you some pictures jim um,
0: Okay.
2: that they look amazingly like uh um uh the rocketeer and uh he's also but, just but just,
0: but not in a legally actionable yes, way. no not in a legally
2: <laughs> actionable way um because he's also created a group of just uh zeppelin troopin ah. which are zeppelin troops who who have oxygen masks and stuff and obviously Right upon zeppelin. So, uh, well, you know
0: that that goes back to uh, in, speaking of actionable things. The old <laughs> PC DOS game of the Rocketeer, which was out in, in you know nineteen ninety ninety one. Oh, right. That was based in this, and I think the the big boss end of it is that you're fighting a bunch of guys wearing uh, the the Nazi rocket packs from the later movie in this movie. Uh, fighting Cliff, and, and he has—he's armed with his uh, Ruger. It's <laughs> just plinking away at, at, at these guys that are coming at him.
1: I'd forgotten all about that. There was uh, there was one for the Super NES as well, but that one was that one was officially licensed. I've you know sort of toyed with the thought of you know can we track somebody down who worked on that and see if they want to come on and talk about uh, it. But uh,
0: and root, I'm I'm actually have somebody on, on that case. I'm excellent. Waiting for a feedback. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs>
1: well, one never and, knows.
2: And now I, I have to also say I just got out my uh, my Funko Rocketeer figure today, and oh excellent it, yes, and showing it to my daughter and uh, we were putting him in a dramatic pose and of course he kept dropping his Mauser, uh, pistol yes. precisely <laughs> like he does in the film, which which, which Willow was quickly pointed out oh to that's and, perfect and uh, that's, so
1: that's the roughly six inch one right because yes. there's a. There's a uh, Funko did a smaller, like a three and three quarter one that's sort of in the old Kenner style. That's a little yeah. bit sort of exaggerated stuff, which is neat. They also did a black and white version of that, which I thought was kind of cool, kind of interesting. So it's just you're holding what looks like a black and white photograph of an action figure. Um, but what uh, that taller one is
2: your sense of reality.
1: well, I, getting out of bed in the morning challenges my sense of so reality. Good, so
2: good 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 call. Yeah.
1: But that uh, that taller figure is actually uh, actually very nicely done. <laughs>
2: yes no no i i enjoy it very much despite his inability to properly hold his his sidearm much as he did in the film that's,
1: that's, he's a lover not a fighter exactly yes, well, that's probably billy him. campbell's fault they probably made a tiny you know 1 scale model of his hand and uh i i think we ought to we got to grill him about it next time he's on well,
0: we'll he'll be he'll be on soon <laughs> if, if people keep checking in we will we'll have him on um well this has been a fascinating and illuminating minute i think excellent <laughs> We'll, Eric, we will have to have you on again to talk further about uh, World War II and um, love and war and all this other stuff that's coming up, especially when uh, we get toward more uh, Nazi esque things, which are certain to follow. Absolutely, so, well, uh, I, I yeah. would
2: enjoy that uh, very much. Um, okay. Is there a way that Hal cannot be here? Maybe Jim, you and I can talk, and have, maybe have Jennifer Connelly on. Well, you let me—I'll see, see what
0: Billy's kind of free up for the whole summer, so we might be able to have, okay. have a, yeah, the extra chair here. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see what we'll see what goes. You that never know wonderful. what happens. I, 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 I appreciate 40 years I've been listening to this. <laughs> and <laughs> and it he still made the call. Yes, it and I still said, okay, <laughs> we'll ask
1: Eric to come on.
0: Right. Wow. Yeah, well. Well, well, his mom always, always did like fun. me best. Well, I, we, we appreciate you being on. But For those of us, or for, for those of you who would like to join in on our conversation, we're available on multitudes of social media out there, of course, at Twitter, at uh, Rocketeer Minute. You can also find us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash rocketeerminute. And also at the great big website, rocketeerminute.com, where we sell, there's all kinds of cool, we don't sell it, Amazon does, but there's all kinds of cool swag, like everything you've just heard Eric and Hal mention, (laughs) they've probably got a a link out there already. So go check the Amazon uh, site at rocketeerminute.com. Also, please, if you, I don't know why you're not subscribing if you're not, but you should be. And if you are, if you aren't subscribing, Go to either Google Play or to iTunes, search for Rocketeer Minute, and click the subscribe button. You can get this and many other episodes delivered hot and fresh first thing in the morning for you to listen to you on your treadmill, walking the dog, uh, climbing on the top of a Zeppelin, or whatever you're <laughs> spending your spare time on. Um, but, uh, yeah, please do, uh, uh, do do visit all those places. Eric, do you, does your museum have a website to visit?
2: Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is lewisarmymuseum.com. Uh, all one word and we are uh we are the the army museum for joint base lewis mccord in washington state it's a joint army and air force base uh it's the only joint base in the department of defense where the army has the lead therefore we make people from the air force clean their own rooms and take out (laughs) their own recycling to which they have uh uh, 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 there's been some cultural issues we'll just say that
1: ever Uh, the rivalry This is from an Army Lieutenant Colonel who has a USMC tattoo on his arm, but not to tell tales out of school. (laughs) So So confused.
2: Yeah, well, that was a a token of of a happily misspent youth. But I, I, I did, in fact, marry a naval officer. And uh, dad was an Air Force pilot and couldn't understand why I've done any of the things that I've done. Uh, you know, the two and, most evil things uh, And your dog war.
1: is in the Peace Corps, so. And, and, and yes.
0: Your, and your daughter's going to
1: become a guardian. I it's, know. It's all going to happen. That,
2: that's exactly. a guardian of the oh. galaxy, perhaps?
0: Yeah, maybe.
1: Who knows? I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. And that's uh, lewisarmymuseum.com. That's L-E-W-I-S. So right. as in Lewis and Clark. Just uh, yeah. Oh, precisely,
2: yes. Meriwether Lewis is is the namesake for the museum, though we never visited the actual piece of real estate where we are. Uh, we sort of it, the museum was originally founded as taking in the army history of the all of the Pacific Northwest, but now we we focus on uh, the units that have been. We are celebrating our centennial, so uh, of Camp Lewis, which was established in nineteen seventeen. So, uh, if you're right if in the middle of in, World War One, that that well, right before uh, the camp was uh, established, right before we entered the war. Wow. Um, uh the, the the local people actually voted a bond issue to put themselves in debt for two million dollars which was pretty sweet cheddar in january 1917 uh to buy land to give to the federal government to build a permanent military installation and so that's where cool camp Lewis came from
0: it's been it's been working good for uh, for a 100 years now so this is yes. a, a perfect time to go visit definitely it, it, and absolutely. i can say from
1: experience it's uh, it's an excellent museum and and uh, eric since you've come in as director you've been doing amazing work um you you've got an upcoming grand opening grand reopening or have i I just missed that
2: no no we are going to reopen we'll be open in time for labor day okay uh uh, we've been uh, our our museum we had spectacular artifacts housed in cutting edge 1970s museum uh, exhibit (laughs) technology uh, with uh, so with mannequins har- from the athletic gold. department at Sears. <laughs> P- per- precisely. Um, there was, we had a lot of uh, suede and, and, and other non-natural fabrics. No, uh, so we're undergoing a, a, a complete uh, renovation. We'll have all new exhibits, uh, which are going to be quite extraordinary. They're in the process of being installed right now, and it's it's cool. By the way, tomorrow I'm getting, how uh, you'll appreciate this, several pallets of mannequins, lifelike military oh, no. mannequins. So it's going to be a busy day at the shop.
1: I, uh, I, you know, I'll be looking for pictures and uh, having yes, been will. in the old mannequin room oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still being deeply disturbed by it. Uh, I'd like to thank you for the nightmares.
0: Yeah, well, wow. a, a, and, and you can use the carpool lane anytime you want. I understand. <laughs>
2: exactly. It is it is one of the benefits. But anyway, again, thank you both for having me on. Uh, it's been a lot of fun.
0: Great. Well, you you'll be on sometime in the, sometime in the future. We don't know when, so everybody has to keep checking back. But please please do right here on the uh, on the airport minute. Not, airport. Oh my gosh, I did it again. <laughs> You're reverting back airports? to your past again. Yeah, my past. No, no. We're, this is definitely the Rocketeer minute. Rocketeer. Yeah, <laughs> cool movie. Rocketeer, uh, fun-looking Rocketeer. guy,
1: helmet, fin head. You remember? It.
0: Yeah, yeah, I got it. Billy, I remember him. Yeah. He'll be on
1: again too. So. And he's listening. Please. right now, rolling his eyes.
0: Yes. What are they talking about? Wow. <laughs> but yes, please join us again here on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out.
1: Go get it,